place because we were working together in the assessment center that day, right? And you, I think you were juggling. I don't even know what, I think you were juggling urine cups, if you remember, but <laughs> you were juggling. And I, I think I just, the reason why I remember it is that it was like a, a very organic laugh. And that's why I remember it most is I, I popped off with a little joke and I said, you know, I always wanted to take up juggling, but I never had the balls. And you just, you, you were taken back by it for a second and you just started laughing your ass off. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that at all? I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't ever remember juggling urine cups. That, that's, although that's totally something I would do. Uh, it's what everybody did, especially I did it just because I have ADHD. I, I fidgeted with stuff. So, but <laughs> that story resonated with me mainly because, like, it was the most genuine laugh that I think I ever got from you. Because when we're at work, I mean, we joke around, but like, we never really like tried to get laughs out of each other. But you, I mean, that just set you off where you you had to stop ex everything that you were doing and you had to walk away for a second. You're like, I wasn't ready for that. It was just well, you got, you got kind of a deadpan sense of humor too. I'm sure the delivery was was awesome. I wasn't even trying. I think I heard that joke like maybe that day, and it literally like it kind of brought back that that joke to me when I saw you doing. I was like, hey, why not? But that's probably why it worked because you weren't planning it. Yeah, I, I try my best when it comes to joking, but usually it's just with my friends, and it's usually out of. You're not allowed to say those types of things at the work, but uh, we kind of we got away with it working where we worked. Right. Well, but, and no. organic mm -hmm. humor is the best kind of. I, I don't even go to comedies because I I don't like laughing on cue. I don't like right. when somebody says, "Here, let me tell you a joke," and then at the end of it, you're kind of socially obligated to deliver a laugh. And right. if it's fake, it's going to sound fake. I'm not good at that kind of thing. It's you know, I prefer. Kind of spur of the moment, catch me by surprise comedy. So I'm not, I'm not really surprised at all. That doing here. You're not a spur oh. of the moment kind of guy. Sweet. But, but there are tons of stories. Like, I mean, you and I, have uh, we've hung out outside of work, our wives together. Mm -hmm. uh, the Halloween party, you remember that? Yes. You were uh, Peter Cottontail or the Easter Bunny or something like that. A deranged Easter rabbit or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It was a, I still have that picture. Yeah, we stopped at the Walmart and I got a pink sweater, had gray sweats already, and I just I think I taped a taped a cotton ball on my butt and that was it. <laughs> and then yeah, I think you, you made like, I made the teeth, didn't I? Yeah, you made the teeth out of napkins okay. and I uh, just stuck them up my lip. <laughs> but no, uh I think we met for uh, a couple fights. You remember the uh, Anderson Silva Weidman rematch that we went to? We met Hooters for it when he broke his leg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just those that. little things, like that's when we hung out, but most of our time together, I think, was at work. And everything yeah, well, I mean, there was did. a kid with everybody, but, you know, by the nature of our jobs, we were able to socialize and, you know, be ourselves to a degree. Uh, you know, for my entire career, I've been doing this for 20 years plus. And it seems like when I put, when I put on my uniform, I put on a different persona. So, I mean, you seeing me out of work, you've seen who I really am, and you've seen me who I am at work, and I've been told, and I've, I have intentionally tried to make that two different people, but with, you know, because we had so much downtime, we could, you know, kind of bullshit and, you know, be frank with each other and not have to play games, you know, business games, shit like that. Right.
And that's really why I created this, this type of form of, uh, I guess, sort of sitting down and talking with people. And a lot of my friends, like we sit there and joke around, but not a lot of them are necessarily into other things other than family life, work, paying bills and stuff like that. But when it comes to individuals other than people that I directly hung out with, such as you, you have other stuff that you do like hobbies and stuff like that. And that's really what I wanted to do with this type of show is focus on people that I know that I find to be interesting and full of abilities that not many people get to see. And that's you stuck out probably the most only because of the plethora of things that you've gotten into. Second would be probably my father-in-law. That guy, he could probably pick up a tool that he's never seen before and know how to use it just by either muscle memory or guessing on what he might think it's for. So, but why I wanted you on here is because I actually wanted to sit down and find out what makes Andy Garrett now. Like, what is it that I know about you or what I don't know about you that, like, where did you grow up? What did you... I, I I think I know what state you came from, Missouri, if I'm not correct, right? That's where I grew up, yeah. Yeah. But I'm originally what is it from about Missouri made you now? Or Florida. Oh, God. Florida? Oh. Yeah, my, my dad actually still lives in the same house that I was born in, in Melbourne, Florida, uh, which is just south of Cape Canaveral. Uh, my birth certificate actually has a little picture of the Apollo rocket, the Saturn V rocket down in the lower left-hand corner of it. It's pretty cool. So I was a space baby and rocket kid and all that stuff. But yeah, parents divorced very young and my mom was married seven times. So dad was number two. So we wound up moving a lot and, you know, spent most of my life off and on and in and around Joplin, Missouri, Webb City, Carterville, uh, you know, all those little mining towns around there. Spent a little time in Lawton, Oklahoma with one of her husbands and you know, chasing the natural gas drilling craze down there. So I bounced around a lot, changed schools a lot, but, you know, always seemed that every other time we moved, it was always back to Joplin. And, uh, you know, just despite what I am today, it may or may not surprise you to know that I was a high school dropout. I uh, I didn't finish high school. Uh, later on, I went, uh, you know, later on I went and finished college. So college was a lot easier because I was interested in it. But high school, I, I wasn't interested in it at all. Um, you know, I just wanted to hang out with friends and, uh, made a lot of grievous mistakes, did a lot of, uh, womanizing as a young guy, kind of burnt my reputation a little bit. So when the opportunity came to get out of Joplin, you know, the time was right and go rebuild a life somewhere else and wound up in Wichita back in the, uh, early nineties and, uh, just tried to pull my head out of my ass and do something meaningful and, uh, wound up working in a hospital. Not that that seemed all that meaningful, but it kept me out of a lot of the trouble I got into as a kid. And I had, you know, and I had already been a cop by that time. I, I did that when I got out of the army. You know, left Joplin, ran off to the army at seventeen. Uh, did a couple of years there. Went to the Gulf War. Came came back. Uh, went to the police academy. Took a job as a cop. Did that for a couple of years, but. You know, I still hadn't grown up at that point. I was still living the life that I lived as a teenager and still being dogged by those decisions and that reputation. And I was just ready to go, ready to go reinvent myself and become the person, you know, I like to think I was always meant to be, the adult me. And, uh, you know, a lot of those people that I knew as a kid are still Facebook friends and stuff like that. But, 
you know, everybody wants to talk about the good old days and reminisce. And I'm happy to forget everything that happened before I was like 25, you know, except the war in the military. I'll keep those memories. Everything else I'll happily let go of. It served no purpose. Do you feel that the military kind of helped you get back? Like, I guess maybe put you on that track to wanting to better yourself or was that any type of hindering at all? No, it was a step in the right direction, but you know, that was, that had its own pitfalls too, because come out of, yeah, it's not like I ever had a drinking or a drug problem or anything like that. Never in my life, not as a kid. Uh, I just, I seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was arrested for a felony when I was 10 years old. Um, and they still let me be a cop, go figure. Um, but joining the army was putting an immature 17 year old. I went to basic training before even my senior year of high school, that summer between my junior and senior year. It's in the army reserve. And it cast a immature teenager with a history of bad decisions into an environment with a whole bunch of guys just like him, who were there, many of whom were there for the same reasons. Um, you know, the military recruits almost exclusively from the rural South and the Midwest. Meet somebody in the Army and you've got a 75% chance that they're from below the Mason-Dixon line and east of the Rockies. That's just where they recruit from. So uh, here we are, a whole bunch of uh, kids. And, you know, a lot of the same mistakes were made, but the stakes were a lot higher. But at the same time, the Army's teaching you discipline. It's teaching you routine. It's teaching you uh, you know, a good regimen and uh, it's giving you lessons even when you don't know it is. So yeah, it helped me grow up. Uh, I still did a lot of stupid shit there, but it helped me grow up. And when I got out, I realized that, uh, you know, I was going to have to be a different guy. And, and I was pretty much from that point forward. I started, you know, I started getting things together, became, you know, went to police academy, did the cop thing for a while. And life was good, but there again, there I was just st still dealing with old reputation and old expectations from old friends. So I decided to move and uh, went to truck driving school and wound up driving out of Missouri for a while. And then when a job came open in Wichita, I took it and I never looked back, never, never moved back to Missouri after that. Well, first, it, it blows my mind how you, I, I actually didn't know that you were a high school dropout, but what blows my mind yeah. about that is that. Not only were you a high school dropout, you're in my in one of my opinions that I have about you is that you're very well uh, informed with like history, uh, what's going on in U.S. Congress and stuff like that. Like you, I, like it blew my mind. Like you knew literally everybody who was in the U.S. cabinet uh, one of the years that we were working together at the hospital. Like that's that. one of those. That's just one of those things that I noticed about you. You're just, I, I don't know if it's the fact that you've read the newspaper, watch a lot of news or what, or where you get your information. But for somebody who dropped out of high school, like, you know, a significant amount about history. And that's really what I, I guess kind of brings us down towards other things that you do. But what is it that makes you like want to know those little things about like whether it be history or Congress? Being a high school dropout was a real blow against my pride. Uh, I didn't take an interest in history of those things in school. You know, I just, I was a very late bloomer to my maturity. And in school, I could, you know, I, I would hear that. And I remember, I could still remember some of the things my high school teacher says. I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can remember, remember exact conversations I had with teachers in school. And I, I found that stuff interesting, but I didn't pursue it until later in life. And 
once I was a high school dropout, that period of time between then, you know, and then I went to the army and then went to the police department. It wasn't until I was almost 30 that I started college. That whole period of time, that decade or so there, I was really having trouble with my ego because I knew I was too smart to be a high school dropout and be doing nothing with my life. So that's when I started taking an interest in current events. And you know, I, I told myself I didn't have to have a piece of paper to know stuff and to be informed. And I, I hated standing around listening to people have a conversation and feel like I didn't know what they were talking about. So I made it my business to be able to participate in some seemingly intelligible way with people having those conversations too, to offer something of substance to it. So I paid attention to the world. You know, a wise man once told me when I was very young that there's half a world that way and there's half a world that way, go see it and pay attention. And you know, you can make something of yourself. I listened. Well, I guess the, I guess the joke that was played on you, I guess kind of aged well, because wasn't it a, a guy at a party? Like you had said something smart and the guy popped off with who brought the nerd. Yeah, Michelle still gives me shit about that. <laughs> I love that because you, you pulled it on me. Yeah, I know. I, I will. I'll put something on Facebook, you know, just piping off somebody. I, I try to be not that guy who says, "Well, actually," because that means that's insulting, right? But I'll try to sneak it in there, like hey, you don't know what you're talking about, and you know, try to in a non-offensive way. And every time I do that, Michelle calls me out and she'll type who brought the nerd, you know, because it's kind of a running joke. I, between loved, she and I, I just loved how it was like perfect timed. You said it was. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, we were at we were actually at Dusty's place there in West Wichita, uh, owned by a good friend of ours, sitting at the bar talking about something. And we, I don't even know what it was, space or the atmosphere or something. It was something scientific. And I said something. Some guy at the end of the bar just says, "Who brought the nerd?" Man, the whole place erupted. That was one of the best moments That's of my shirt. life, even though I was the butt of the joke. That's a shirt, personally, but I mean, it is what it is. Who brought the nerd? <laughs> I might have to have that printed. <clears throat> but no, uh, uh, I mean, all the stuff that I know that you've done down, I guess, your current path of of life since I've known you. I guess you and I met in 2011, and the only thing I personally knew about you other than one, you worked security for the hospital. Same one I worked at, uh, you also did tattoos. Mm -hmm. And my question was, is like, I never really thought about like the, like training that they go through or anything like that. Now, were you self-trained or did you just venture down this road by accident? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the story of how that came to pass. Do you remember Will, big Will from security? Will, um, very big guy. He was one of the one of the leads. By the time you started, I had been there ten years. He might have left sometime around then. But in any in yeah. any case, he was he was my boss. Um, we're about the same age. He might have me by a year or two. And he was kind of having a crisis. This was probably two thousand five. Uh, two thousand. When did I start tattooing? Two thousand three. 2003 and he was having kind of an early midlife crisis not knowing he didn't want to be a security guard for the rest of his life in a hospital so i was working at good shepherd at the time and he would come out there on his rounds checking up on me and he'd sit there and we'd shoot the breeze for a while i said you know what i'm gonna go to welding school and then 
uh, you know, I'd say, dude, you don't want to weld. You got a sweet gig. And I'd tell him all the reasons why that's not good. Now, bear in mind, bless his heart, Will was a big fella. He was about 5'7", well into the 300s. And, you know, he started, he would come in the next day and talk about how he's going to go to truck driving school. The next day he was going to be a carpenter. The next day he was going to learn scuba diving and do underwater pipe fitting and stuff like that. And I'd say, dude, you, I mean, you know, you know, great that you're ambitious, but you're just not really built for that kind of stuff. And so he would come in expressing his daily dream and I would shoot him down. That seemed to be the routine. And one day he came in and said, dude, I got it. I'm going to be a tattoo artist. And I, you know, I couldn't think of any reason why that work, wouldn't work, you know? Went, okay, cool. Said, Sounds sweet. Do you know anything about art? He said, no, I don't need to know anything about art. You just you get these little stencils and you put them on the skin and you draw them in and you color them. It's like a coloring book. Anybody can do it. And yeah, you know, I've been an artist all my life, so I kind of knew that there was going to be more to it than that, right? And he knew I was in art, and he said, well, he said, tell you what, you, you know art, so why don't we just do it together? You teach me the art thing, we'll practice on each other, we'll be all tattooed up, and then we'll open a shop and go into business together. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, where does one go to buy tattoo stuff? How, how do you break into the ranks of being a tattooist? You know, I thought you had to know the secret handshake and, you know, three knocks on the door and tap with the foot. And, and he said, no, you, just, you can get it on eBay. Get it, go on eBay, get a kit, you know, a little starter kit, and you're a tattoo artist. Sweet, okay. So I did. I went home that night, ordered, spent some money that I didn't have, ordered this stuff, kind of excited about it. And long story short, he never did. He, ne he was on to the next dream the next day. Uh, but I took an interest in it. I found a, I found a very good webpage. Or it was actually a tattoo shop's website. And in the Q&A section, you know, frequently asked questions. It read like a textbook on how to do tattoos. And it was, it was skin centric. It was all about the medical, what's going on in the skin, how the angle of the needle matters, you know, how to control the actual physics of what's going on, which to me is perfect because that's how I learn. If I, if I know why something works, I can do it if it makes sense to me. And tattooing made sense to me. And I said, you know, I read, I practiced on a banana a couple of times. And I called Will and I said, get your butt over here. I'm going to do my first tattoo. So I said, pick something off this page. You know, there's a little sheet of super simple little flash, little butterflies and happy faces and crap like that. He says, no, 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 no. He says, I want, he says, I want a, an armored fist busting out of my skin, holding a spine with a skull on top with horns breathing fire. I said, really? I said, that's what you want for my very first tattoo. That, that, that's what you want. And then he wanted it right here, right up here on his neck. So my first tattoo was one of the more challenging tattoos I ever did. And you actually made it look 3d like that. Uh, well, no, it wasn't a really great tattoo, but um, it was passable. <laughs> you know, uh, they got better over the years, of course. Um, you know, I, I kept studying, I kept learning, I kept trying different techniques and, found out what I was good at and tried to tell people that when they want, you know, if somebody come to me, I want a tattoo. I don't know what I want. So, well, this is what I'm good at. Other people come to me and they, you know, they know exactly why I want the chief's logo. Okay, fine. You know, that's a sticker. That's easy. And I did that for a long time. I, I never opened a shop. I built a shop in the house, as you know, and uh, converted that. And it seemed like four to five nights a week for 16 years, I had people knocking on the door in the dinner hour to come over and, sit for two or three hours and get a tattoo, sometimes five or six hours. And 
I did long running projects with sleeves and backs. And uh, one girl I tattooed from her ankle to the top of her shoulder. Did sleeves on both of her arms, sleeves on both of her legs. You know, I, some people I worked with a lot. Some people I only ever saw once. But the fact that people came back for more most of the time was evidence that, well, maybe I'm doing something right. But, yeah, I was entirely self-taught. Uh, just, you know, YouTube University. And that was back before YouTube, really. It was just what I could find on the Internet, practice trial and error, and found out what worked. And, you know, then a few years later, of course, tattooing is the biggest thing on History Channel and Discovery. But there's tattoo TV shows and, you know, there's like five or six. So, of course, the cost of tattoo supplies tripled overnight when tattooing became popular. Now, you know, the same thing with this knife making. It's got a TV show. Supplies went through the roof. So, it's like once I take an interest, you know, a couple of years later, the world takes an interest and kind of steps on my toes a bit. But 16 years I did tattooing before my body could take it. Very, and that's, it's very and that's hard, why you quit, very hard right? on attendance. Yeah. Did you have carpal tunnel also? Like carpal tunnel? Uh, issues with yeah, well, I had carpal tunnel from a, from a previous job. But, uh, you know, when you're tattooing, you have to, to do three points of stretch. You get to put your hand on the skin, stretch it this way, put your palm on it, stretch it this way, and then do intricate artwork while your shoulders, your elbows, and your wrists are all under tension. And you've got this tight pull, so you're constantly stressed while trying to do really beautiful art. It's it's kind of opposite forces working together. So that, you know, bless the guys that can pull it off. But there's a reason why you don't ever see tattoo artists older than me. You know, I'm in my early 50s now, and it, you don't ever see them that old. You see them in their 20s, you see them in their 30s. By the time they're in their 40s, they're breaking down. Right. Part of the back, it's neck, everything. Well, I guess, I mean, really the only, the only, actually the, by accident, I actually found out who you were. I realized who Andy was is because I think we were down in zone three of the hospital and you were just doodling, right? Mm -hmm. And by happenstance, I looked at your brass that you had on your shirt at the time. I think it said Garrett, but I didn't know what, what your first name was, obviously. But then that's when you started talking to me about tattoos. And I was like, oh, this is the guy. I mean, but watching you free draw something blew my mind. Because really, you only see that either in art class or Bob Ross did it with portrait painting. I mean, the guy, the guy just made things look so easy. And you watch, watching you do that just by being bored you made it look easy but I, I know that drawing is not easy i've never been an artistic guy with clay with with drawing with painting or anything like that and people like that i mean i i draw interest to pretty well mainly because i'm probably not good at it i don't know what it is but i think that an artistic mind has a, a highly patient mind in my opinion but i think that a lot of it is patience uh, it, it is. And a, a lot of it is just being able to reproduce in your mind's eye what your actual eye sees or, or to reproduce on paper what you can imagine. And, you know, and thank you for the compliment. I Art is one of those things that's really difficult to teach. You can teach technique, but you can't teach somebody who's not an artist to be an artist. It simply can't be done. You have, you have somebody has to start with a baseline ability which will be revealed in childhood because what does every kid do? They draw pictures, right? Okay. Every kid goes through that, that artist phase between something around three and 10 where they're drawing pictures, they're doing works of art, they're making macaroni necklaces, looking for that feedback. You know, what kind of feedback are they getting? Are they getting honest feedback? Are they getting the parents' feedback? But that feedback will tell them whether or not they've got a gift or they don't. 
And if they do, they can pursue it. A lot of them don't. Uh, if they don't have a gift, they'll figure that out through social cues and they'll abandon it. But in, you know, I, I always had the ability and my mom was, is also a very brilliant artist. My dad is also a brilliant artist. So they gave me feedback, but they gave me honest feedback and they would tell me how, you know, what wasn't right, what could be better. They, you know, obviously not at a super young age, but as I kept throwing pictures in front of their faces to get stuck on the refrigerator, you know, I'd be like, hey, you think you could do that better next time? And, and it, you know, it worked in my benefit. And the hospital allowed me, you know, the nature of that job was kind of like being a fire extinguisher. You sit around, wait until the alarm bell rings, go do something. The rest of the time, it's standing around looking for bidding. And you can do that, draw pictures at the same time, I found out. Uh, I'd be sitting there drawing. And, and just like you, other people would see me draw. And then, what are you drawing? Well, I'm drawing a tattoo for Melissa over there, you know, or whatever. And, oh, you do tattoos? And voila. I, you know, I never wanted to be that guy who, you know, is like selling Tupperware or Amway or something like that, where I'm pitching people all the time. I hate sales with a passion. Can't stand it. I don't want to. If I've got something to sell, it was a car salesman for a while and I was miserable. I made minimum wage. It's terrible. I can't sell something I don't believe in. And I can't sell something I do believe in by pushing it on somebody who may not be interested in it. But with that, when people like you got word of what I did, they would come up and start the conversation with me and I would answer their questions. And I would always wait until deep into the conversation to say something like, well, you know, if you want to talk about this, look, give me a call or a text after work because I didn't like to do that at work. You know, I'd go so far as give somebody my number and maybe talk about their idea for 30 seconds. Say, okay, fine, let's talk. You seem serious. We'll talk about it. Uh, and, you know, that supported my income for a very long time. And it was, you know, also obviously the medical community, the firemen, the fire community, the law enforcement community, that became the, the, the foundation on which my clientele was built. And of course, all their friends, their family, you know, and then people they work with. And it just got to the point where, I mean, I bet I've done, if I had to put a number on it, I don't know, three, 4,000 tattoos at that time, a lot. But would you say drawing and tattooing are two different things like coming from you, or is it pretty comparable yeah. to like how it is that you're actually drawing? Well, the image you're creating has to live up to the same artistic standards. You know, it has to have line work that draws your eye through the image. The image has to, if I want somebody to look at this part of the image, the line work and the backgrounding and everything has to push the eye in that direction. There's techniques for that. Um, and it has to make artistic sense. It's got to be balanced. It's got to be a good compensation. So in that way, they're both the same. The execution is completely different. And toward the, I don't know, I guess, 10 years into tattooing, I found it easier to draw on skin than I did on paper because I, my focus doing the tattoo was a lot sharper because I knew I only had one try. You know, I, could only, I only got one shot to make that line. But when I was drawing that image before the tattoo, I might draw that line 15 times. And the width of the pencil line became important. You know, if, if, if I needed to move that pencil line over just the width of the line, and it's the same way with the knives. You know, I, I, if the plan has to be perfect if the end product is going to be approaching perfect. You can't have a crappy drawing. You know, it doesn't have to be completely finished, but the line work has to be solid. The line and the structure of it, the bones of that piece of art has to be perfect before it goes on the skin. And 
you know, if it is, and I move that tattoo line, the slightest hair off of the stencil, it's still going to be okay. It's still going to be within that 2% realm of acceptability. Well, I asked that question because on my very first tattoo that I ever got, I remember the, the guy who was doing it was telling me about a guy who came in and was looking for a job to tattoo where he wanted to shadow him before he got a, a job tattooing. And he said, great, I have no problem with that. Just bring me some of your designs or doodles. That, like he's, he preferred doodles is really what he said. He goes, I just want some like general idea of where your ability is. And the guy said, I don't doodle. And he goes, well, I, I can't use you then. And that's really why I asked, because I wasn't sure how, how difficult it was to train somebody from going from paper to skin or vice versa. Because if nobody's really doodles on paper, then how do you know they're going to be any good on skin? Right. And he answered that question perfectly, because if you're not drawing pictures on paper, you've got no business drawing pictures on skin. You know, right. it's the same way with the painters. You know, even Jackson Pollock, the dribble guy, with the, you know, slung paint all over the canvas and all that. Years, years after his death, going through his, his files, they found drawings of those images. He would draw those. They had to be planned. I mean, so he wasn't just freehanding crap onto a canvas. All the great artists planned everything. Da Vinci, he planned everything. Everything was built in stages. And, you know, I had people come into the studio once in a while. They had this idea that to get the best art, you have to let the artist freehand the work, right? And I, I said, no, I'm... Freehanding can have a couple of different means, meanings, but to me, it was work without a stencil. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I will draw you an image. I will create an image myself. We won't copy anything from media. We won't pull anything out from that we found on the web. We'll create a unique you know, organic image just for you based on your criteria, but I'm not going to just stick a needle in your skin and go to town. I, it would look like a third grader did it. you know. Even, right. And I don't know a tattoo artist that would do that. It's irresponsible. Well, I mean, I guess those people should be appreciative, but I mean, I just didn't know. I, I, I guess I just can't, couldn't wrap my mind around like really what does doodling do. But when he actually explained it to me while I was sitting there, it really kind of clicked. But uh, some of my best pieces of art started as doodles. I'd started as a doodle and I said, and I'd be mad at myself because I was writing on the back of a prescription pad, you know, and I had like a three by five piece of paper. I was like, man, this needs to be expanded. You know, so I'd go Xerox it, blow it up or whatever to the size I want, then get it in a position where I could expand on the art and go crazy with it. Mad at myself that I started on such, I mean, because I draw on anything. I draw on cardboard boxes. And sometimes they turned out really great. You know, when I didn't know what I wanted to draw, but I knew I wanted to draw, I'd just draw a circle in the middle of the page. It's amazing all the different things you come up with, you know, perspective drawings and just crazy stuff from just putting a shape on a page. But, uh, yeah. No, I, correct, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You came up with two tattoo books, didn't you? Or was it just Yeah, uh, it two. It, it was self-published. Nobody paid me money to publish right. a book. But, uh, you know, it's... The tattoo artist has to present his work to people that's unfamiliar with it. And, you know, I started doing that the way most of them do with photo apps. You print out the picture or, you know, take pol you know back in the day it was a Polaroid. He's taking this photo album and he got stacks of photo albums. But it became much easier to just do a self-published picture book, which, you know, you download a format. You can paste pictures in there, whatever you want, throw some words in there, make it all clever. And, yeah, over the years, I published two of those 
through Blurb, which is a popular self-publishing company. And uh, they did my knife book later on too, which I'm, about, I'm working on the second edition for that right now. Hoping I have the latest, you know, edition of the software, but we'll see. I'm yeah. not great with technology, as I've told you. So it's a struggle. Right. But uh, when it, would you say that you got at least half of your tattoos in those books? No. Uh, eh, no, I don't think I got half. Because, I mean, bear in mind, a lot of, a lot of the tattoos I did were the same old thing. You know? There's only so many nautical stars. There's only so many compasses. There's only so many kanji symbols for eternity. I was just uh, having this conversation with somebody on Facebook earlier today, ironically, that I survived a great many phases in tattooing. You know, the star phase, the infinity symbol, the year of the infinity symbol. God, how many of those did I Yeah, exactly. I mean, everything, because right now it's uh, let them. Somebody was showing a bunch of pictures of girls getting tattoos of the words let them, because it has something to do with a poem. You know, some feel-good empowering poem and i made the comment that i survived all these things in, in tattooing and be mindful that having such a tattoo can date you you know i've got a i've got a tasmanian devil tattoo on my arm which only happened in the 80s <laughs> you know so only, only people that lived through the 80s get that tattoo uh live, you know the decade of the tribal tattoos of the japanese oh, tattoo yeah. you know molan labe yeah no judgment but yeah, there's my tribal tattoo right there. Uh, I got a couple of them, but... <laughs> but no, I mean, just in the time that I've known you, I think, I mean, one, I learned that you... I mean, obviously, I knew that you were in law enforcement for a short time. I don't know exactly how long, but I uh-huh. think that these little things that you've picked up, like tattooing and now knife making, but the other things that you do, like uh, you built a boat, Self-trained on that, I'm assuming, except for, like, the woodwork. I mean, you kind of had some idea about woodwork, right? Actually, I bought a book on how to build a plywood boat from uh, Glenel, Glenel.com. The Glenel Corporation out in California is one of the oldest companies to buy plans to build a boat. I actually had no intention to build a boat. I've often said that all the coolest things that ever happened to me happened to me by accident. I discovered it by accident. I didn't go looking for it. We had been to the lake with some friends and we were on their boat and our friends like to go to the lake and go out and hit the water. And they're out there 10, 12 hours cooking in the sun, drink a beer. Uh, We were always a couple of years older than our friends, Michelle and I, we'd be ready to head back to camp about halfway through that. Right. Okay. We got to get our own boat. So I get on the, get on the interwebs looking at different boats. I see this beautiful wooden boat. So I click on the picture and it brought me to the Glenel website. So I bounced around explored about who, who knew you could build your own boat, you know? So I looked at the catalog of designs, thought, well, I need something I could fit in the garage and something that I can do with my current set of tools, maybe buy one or two new things and buy a pile of lumber, and buy this book and read the book and go to town. It's amazing what you can learn from a, from a 200 page hardback book, you know? And so I bought a bunch of mahogany and some Marine grade plywood, built a 14 foot twin cockpit runabout. And it took me three and a half years friends laughed at me and then when they saw it taking shape they took an interest and you know put fiberglass coating on the bottom of it painted it uh learned a lot about nautical terms and you know all the what all the different parts of a boat are called you know the shear the the chine the the carline you know everybody knows what a keel is and a transom but there's a there's a every piece of wood on a boat has a name and 
Uh, I learned a lot and had a great time. It was, it, that has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done. In fact, I'm, I've got to put a new deck on it right now because the deck is aging. And once I get a new deck put on it, the one I want, and I want to make it look the way I want to look, I'm going to sell the boat. Because while I loved the boat and I loved building the boat and I loved having the boat, I don't really like boating. Um, I'm not a fan of just going out and zipping around on the water, which is weird, but uh, just like airplanes. I like I like airplanes, but I, I get flying, I can take it or leave it. But the airplanes are cool. I like the technology and the, uh, and, you know, but yeah, as soon as the, the boat's done and it was supposed to be a project for this winter, that didn't happen. So hopefully this spring and go out there and redo the deck, get it all painted up pretty, put it up for sale and lose a shit ton of money on it. Because I could have bought three boats for the cost of the, what it took to build one. Really? Yeah. Lumber's expensive, dude. Oh, yeah. Now it is, for sure. But yeah, like, it's all, you all, all solid bronze screws, solid bronze nails, you know. Did you finish that in 2012 or 13-ish? I laid the keel in 2011, so I finished it okay. in 2014, I'm guessing. Okay, so about the same time that I actually started the hospital, so. Okay. And the name of that boat is Morning Wood. <laughs> you can thank, my, you can thank my lovely wife for that, man. We I was thinking thinking that, thinking she's the name. one that told me that she named it. And yeah. I was like, no way. Yeah, I, I wanted to call it the other woman because I spent all my time with it in the garage for all those years, you know. <laughs> Either and, one uh, would have been an original name, but Morning Wood, yeah, I think, takes the cake. Mor morning Wood, man, when I'm at the dock putting that thing in the water, kids will read it. Ask their parents what it means. <laughs> <laughs> a morning. Oh, he just likes he he just likes wood in the morning. You know, it's funny as that. It's a conversation starter for sure. But yeah, original. My buddy Adam. That's... Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I just think that the originality I think is what really sells it. Yeah. The uh, we had the uh, the little sticker for the name made by our buddy Adam there in town. They all superior science and he made that from a solid gold it's actually actual 24 karat gold leaf laid in on the name you know like the old wooden boats of the 30s 20s and stuff it was a lot of fun Jeez. so made a boat also i think in that time you got your pilot's license i'm not sure exactly what year you got it but i know that you got your plane in around 2013-14 yeah, I uh, got my pilot's license. I did most of my training. Took about six months. Um, see, there's there's another thing that, and this was being clever on my part. I knew I wanted to do it. I had wanted to do it for a lot of years. Just thinking, you know, that's that's something I should know how to do because I like being that that one percent kind of guy. You know, one percent of people have a pilot's license. One percent of people can do this. One percent of people can do that. I like having those unusual distinctions that not a lot of people can say they have. Uh, not that I had any ambition of flying for a living, you know, or anything like that. I thought, you know what? That stuff's learnable. It's just a matter of money. So while Michelle and I were out drinking, and she was, you know, not at one hundred percent defense, I asked her if it'd be cool if I started taking flying lessons. Sure, no problem. So scored, and uh, six months later, I. I think I actually got my pilot's license in February of 2012. Um, and I'm proud to say that it takes most people 40 hours 
of actual flight instruction to 40 hours of ground school, that's the minimum the FAA requires. It takes most people 60 to 70 hours of actual instruction because retention becomes an issue, right? Um, even in flight schools, it takes about 60 hours. If, you know, if you're a college flight student up at K-State. I finished my training. I did my ground school on a DVD program that my instructor said, yep, that's the equivalent. He signed off on it. I bought a DVD set from a from an aviation supplier, and it was taught me all the technical stuff I needed to know. And it took me 40.5 hours with a 40-hour minimum. It took me 30 minutes over the bare legal minimum to, to meet all the requirements in my logbook to take my check ride and to pass my check ride on my first try. So I'm very proud of that. I know nothing at all about planes, but I know how difficult to, I guess really not just difficult, but I know that how much time it takes people to actually get it. Some people, it takes a whole year to actually yeah. come up with the time to actually go through the schooling. Well, I, I learned at, and I had some advantages because uh, Ben Sorensen was my flight instructor, flight instructor there in Wichita. It was, you know, it was private one-on-one. -on -one. He was available. And I learned at Westport. Uh, Dead Cow International, that a lot of people there in town know it as, right there in the industrial part of town. And it's a 2,400-foot runway right in the middle of town. A lot of people don't even know it's there. They see planes going down, and they'll call the police. Hey, a plane just crashed in the middle of Wichita. You know, it's been there since forever, and people still don't know it's there. But they say if you can learn to fly out of that airport, you can learn to fly out anywhere because it's only like 10 feet wide, 2,400 feet long. You can land in the grass next to the runway if you have to. And even on the ground, you're in the Class C airspace of Eisenhower International. So just to take off from Westport, I've got to be talking to the tower at Wichita, Mid-Continent Airport. You know, and a lot of people find that communication with the tower and the, that radio traffic with the FAA to be very intimidating. And it can be because they're just rattling stuff off like this fast, fast, fast. And they're throwing radio frequencies at you and they're throwing you know, vectors at you, which way to go, who to talk to. And it's very, very intimidating. But when you start from day one, having to do that, it's a cakewalk. So I've, I felt very blessed to learn in that spot. So are you only licensed to fly one type of plane or are you licensed to fly one class of plane or? I am licensed to fly any single engine land-based aircraft under 200 horsepower with conventional gear or tricycle gear which means i can drive a fly a tail dragger i took extra training later to fly a tail dragger which is more complex it's it's more difficult to land because the center of gravity is behind the main gear and it wants to the rear end wants to flip places with the front end and do what's called a ground lift so the so all your bush your driving and stuff like that what's that did your, did your truck driving at all help with you learning the gears and stuff like that no no there's no gears there's no gears in, in airplanes oh, oh okay. it's just you can change the pitch on the blades, you know, if you have a complex ticket, which I don't. So that's called a, a uh, fixed or excuse me, a variable variable pitch or constant speed prop. And I'm not licensed to fly one of those. That, that, those come generally in your higher horsepower engines. So I'm restricted to below 200 with a fixed pitch prop. So it's just throttle for me. In and out with the throttle. Okay. Well, I know the plane that you had that I saw was, uh, was it one or two person? It just had to be a certain weight. It was one person. Uh, that particular airframe is called an air bike made by Tennessee Engineering and Manufacturing or team. And it was a kit that somebody built. It wasn't even a kit. It was plans. 
and it's it's kind of like a motorcycle with wings. That one was 40 horsepower. They can be built to the ultralight standard, which is under 254 pounds. Mine was not. It was built to the light sport standard. So if it's an ultralight, you don't even need a pilot's license to fly it. Mine had to, you had to be a regularly licensed pilot to fly my plane, but it was still one seat. Uh, I don't know how much it weighed, probably 400 pounds, and I made it even heavier by putting a bunch of crap on it I didn't need. But in the Kansas winds in a 40 horsepower plane with a long wingspan, it was kind of like being a leaf on the breeze. That thing just beat the crap out of me. And, you know, I'm not a small fella. Too, I, even back then, I was probably 265, 275. And that little plane on a hot day, you know, 80 degrees, and the temperature makes the air thinner, right? So the airplane doesn't perform as well. There's fewer air molecules in a cubic feet of space than there are in a cold day. Cold day, I'd fly great. But a hot day, no, it was terrible. So wound up selling it. Well, I mean, you got the license. I mean, that's just one thing that one other thing that you did while I was working with you. And I was like, how's this guy got all this time? I mean, at one time, <laughs> I guess you and I can both say that your wife was our boss. So I mean, I was yep. like, man. That's but yeah, no, I mean, I met you met oh, you met at the hospital? Oh, that's yeah, right. we met when we were, we, she was the she was a clinical coordinator at Good Shepherd when we both worked there. Okay. That's how we met. So before, before I get before into I met the, you, I went to college full time for four and a half years working at that place. What was your major? I started out in education. Uh, I was gonna be a teacher. Strange that a high school dropout was gonna be a teacher, right? I was gonna teach high school English. Um, but the English department at WSU, I don't know, those professors, they were kind of in love with the sound of their own voices, rubbed me the wrong way. And the education professors were trying to convince me to go into elementary because there weren't enough men in the elementary age level. I thought, okay, I could probably get whatever job I wanted. So I did that. And I, I learned my senior year, second semester of my senior year, while well, I was student teaching, coming up on graduation that I just really didn't like kids, which was a really inconvenient thing to discover, having just gone to college for four and a half years to be a teacher, uh, or four years at that point, three and a half. So I went to my, you know, I realized, you know, with a military and law enforcement background, I was not going to last long as a teacher. This, the discipline problems, that, I mean, you've seen the horror stories about what teachers have to put up with the class. Can you see me tolerating that? I mean, I have a low tolerance for crap from anybody, let alone a child that hasn't been on earth long enough to, you know, for their balls to drop. I wouldn't listen to it. So I Honestly, went to my I advisor. Are you mad? <laughs> well, so. I, I try not to, I try not to get mad at work, but I also did. I, I wouldn't let conversations be prolonged when they didn't have to. I don't, I didn't let people monopolize you guys in time because other people needed your care. Right. Uh, right. And it was just unfair for them to be, assholes when they didn't have to be so i went to my advisor i said look this was the wrong choice for me what can i do and education you might be surprised to learn at that time this was circa 2003 did not require a foreign language it's one of only two degrees at wsu that did not require a foreign language because it was so course heavy and all the other stuff like multicultural education you know, how to teach, your curriculum and instruction, all the things other than your major that you had to learn. So they said, well, you don't have a foreign language. You can either go to school for two more years taking sequential foreign language classes to get the hours because you can't take them all at once. I thought, well, that doesn't sound fun. So what else you got? 
I said, well, bachelor's of general studies, but it required a couple of more classes and a few more disciplines. So the shorter route for the bachelor's degree for me was a bachelor of general studies, which when you tell people that's what you have, like, what the hell's that? Well, it's 147 credit hours of a minimum of so many hours in three different fields of discipline. You know, you have to, you can't just be focused in the humanities. You got to have you know, a bunch of humanities, a bunch of science, a bunch of lab. And yeah, that's how it wound up being. And you get emphasis. You don't get a major. You get emphasis. So I had emphasis in English, emphasis in history, and emphasis in law enforcement or administration of justice. Well, I didn't even know you had a college degree, to be honest. I just, I knew that you had said something about going to college, but I didn't know yeah. you had a bachelor's for sure. Well, I don't use it. So, you know, other than I don't to think many people do anymore, enrich my life. <laughs> so, an overpaid enrichment? <laughs> well, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't regret going. I learned a lot and being 30 something, and Wichita State's kind of a non-traditional school. There's a lot of non-traditional students there, older folks, you know, a couple of years later in life, not coming right out of high school. But, I mean, you know, I'm conservative-minded. You know, I, 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 have, I have a few deal-breaker issues in my life, like things like national security, things like Second Amendment, things like that, that keep me on the right side of center. So being in college was a lot like being behind enemy lines, especially in like my 400 level history class, or excuse me, 700 level history class. And it was very interesting to sit through classes when everybody's arguing one point of view and I'm arguing the other point of view. Ethics was great. I made somebody cry. The guy that taught my ethics class was a Franciscan friar, right? So I made a, I made a woman cry in my ethics class. So Consequently, because I was always the turd in the punch bowl with the oppositional point of view, I got great grades because college is not about knowing stuff. College is about thinking meaningfully about stuff and being able to articulate your point of view. So I've told a lot of young people going to college, so whatever you do, disagree with the professor. Whatever he says, make the argument to the contrary. And if you make a good argument, they'll be impressed that you thought about it and you'll get a good grade. I don't know if that's worked or not, but that's the free advice I've given. I guess maybe I was blessed in the schooling that I do have that, I mean, I guess I got along with my professors, but I guess only one of them really challenged me on something that I thought that was incorrect or I guess opposite of what they were teaching or whatever. Like, I guess, I don't know, but I do agree that you I, have to think. I got along great with them personally. I mean, I, I was the most adult person in the room most of the time. So we got along. I just made oldest? it a point. Well, I, typically, oldest? yeah, I was in my early 30s for most of that. So uh, they they tended to treat me, as, you know, and I had been in the military and I'd done this stuff. So I was coming at it with a little life experience. So they didn't just shoot me down. Even if they thought I was wrong, they 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 treated me as if I had a right to my opinion. I guess maybe that's the best way to put it. All right. Wow. Well. Before we get into the the goods for, I guess, listeners and viewers that will be really watching this, I think I think they're going to get a kick out of what that's going to bring. You had another hobby that you just started taking up, and that was aero, uh, astro photography. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, we were, our neighbor was out looking through some binoculars trying to spot Jupiter because it was visible with the four Galilean moons, the four biggest moons of Jupiter. 
and we heard something on the radio or something like that. So I busted out my old 12-power rifle scope that I got in the garage. Michelle and I came in the backyard. We're looking through it. We could actually see Jupiter and four of its moons through this rifle scope. So we go inside, and I see her looking on her laptop at telescopes. Like she wants to buy a telescope. I was like, oh, hell yeah, I want a telescope my whole life. So I took that ball right out of her hand and ran with it. <laughs> so I was learning everything. there, And that's the way I operate. When I take an interest in something, I want to learn everything there is to learn about it early before I start spending money so I don't waste a lot of money, right, by right. conflicting technologies. or uh, you know, I want to choose a path that I want to get into this hobby. This, this, this sounds the most enjoyable to me. And by choosing that path early and not changing it, even though it does get changed, you can save a lot of money along the way, right? I'm not a rich man, right. so I've got to I've got to do this smart. So yeah, I, I now own two telescopes, a reflector and a refractor. Uh, bought a DSLR camera used on eBay that I'm gonna uh, actually gonna be modifying it this week. I finally got the stuff I need to modify it, pull out some filters so that it can see it can collect more data. You know, more reds and more infrareds, more uh, stuff from space. And you got to take these long exposure images, stack images, you know, several hours worth of data to get one picture that's impressive enough to look at. You know, most of these pictures of space, it's not click, there's a picture. That's a lot of data. And that's, I want to teach myself that. So it's, uh, so I have yet to do any photography. What's that? Ever? Oh, I've taken a couple of shots of the moon. No, I've taken a couple of shots with the moon with my cell phone through the through the little fifty dollar Craigslist scope I bought. But my good scope, I drove to Spokane to to get it uh, in really bad weather. I have yet to put all. I've got all the parts and all that, but I got to modify the camera. So I've yet to do any real astrophotography. I've done some stargazing with it. I'm getting ready to uh, hope, hope this week. Or next week, that comet is going to be visible. Yeah. Uh, that, that comet, it's a one, it's a fifty thousand year orbit, so it's the only chance in our lifetime, and for many lifetimes, that anybody's going to get to see it. So, I want to see that. And I want to take a couple of shots of it. Th those will, those snapshots will work. So, so is this something Michelle's going to really take interest in out of all the stuff that you've done? Do you think? Yeah, she's she's actually kind of stoked about it. She, you know. She'll let me do all the technical stuff and the setup and the learn. You know, she, she'll look through it and enjoy it, and she'll. Uh, she's not going to get into the photography. She'll, and we'll take it with us when we camp. You know, because when you camp up here in Idaho, you get really dark skies. Uh, you're out in the middle of the mountains and you look up, and the the Milky Way is just this big bright band across the sky with multiple shades of blues and reds and cool stuff. And uh, that that's really going to be a good environment for astrophotography you know even taking broad pictures with the mountains in the in the foreground she'll she's gonna enjoy it uh, i think this will be the one hobby i have that she gets into more than any other don't get me wrong she likes to put around on the boat probably more than i do but uh, this one i think she'll really enjoy Bye. so how often do you guys camp now where you guys are living i know that i see pictures on your facebook all the time of like new little things that you guys are trying like you guys just went white water rafting i do believe like last year uh we did that last year we've done that a couple of times we did that before we ever lived up here actually we white water rafted here that was part of what in, in uh enchanted us about idaho and moved us up here was all of the adventure that we experienced going to her aunt and uncle's 50 year anniversary on a visit 
but we camp uh, a good year for us is six times a year. Uh, bad years, maybe four. Uh, you know, that's a busy year. But we have, you know, 12 hour hospital shifts. You know, we get four yeah. days off together so we can go camping without burning any PTO. And we camp in the middle of the week because we work every weekend. So campgrounds are open. We don't have to wait in line. We never get turned down. It's uh, kind of the perfect storm for camping. And, you know, this last year we, we added the side by side to the to the camping mix. So that kind of changed the way we camp a little bit. Sometimes we add a day because normally it's just two nights. But now we're kind of adding a third night because we like to hike. And now we like to side by side. You know, we only have one full day. We have the day we arrive, one full day, and then the day we leave. If we add another day, we can do more stuff. And that makes it worth dragging all that crap out to the campground because I got to stack the side by side on top of the truck on a ramp and tow the camper behind that high up into the mountain somewhere. It's a lot of work. So we want to enjoy it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys moved from Kansas to where you guys are now between two mountain ranges. Is that right? That the temperature well, stays at a certain temp? Well, yeah, the, the weather phenomenon here in the Treasure Valley is is kind of double-edged sword. It We have cooler summers. We'll get to triple digits, but we won't stay there as long as Kansas will. We have warmer winters. We'll get, I don't think it went below freezing at all this year. Uh, so be even at this northern latitude and southwestern, because we're near Boise in southwestern Idaho. Uh, we have milder winters, milder summers, but we have longer winters, much longer winters. And the sun is much further south in the sky, you know, so the days get very, very short. Just in the deep of winter, it's dark when we go to work. It's dark when we come home. It's dark for most of the day. But in the summertime, it's daylight till 1030 at night, you know. So it's kind of a different environment than living in the Midwest down there. Uh, but, yeah, the, the weather here is just it's mild and it's cool it snows but it doesn't howl you know the one thing we don't miss about kansas is the wind even though today oh. is a little blustier than normal but in kansas this wind that i'm having today would be nothing <laughs> you know because you know, every time we go back we go back to kansas and we step out of the airport we're like holy crap i'm ready to go already yeah i don't miss i i that's one thing that i hate about kansas. that and the bipolar weather that we have here that's the one thing that i I do hate is the wind because you never know if you're going to lose something in the middle of the night. It's not the land of extremes down there. But Hey, why don't we get into really? I think that it's your pride and joy. And I think that you actually, I think when you actually talk about knife making and blades and all that, I think that something in, inside of you really sparks up. And I think that just by listening to the video that I watched last night about the, the spark testing and stuff like that, I think a lot of it has to do with the history behind everything that really brightens your enthusiasm about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, if if ever I've done a thing as a hobby that identifies me, you know, that I want to be associated with a hobby, you know, this is part of my character. You know, I'm sitting in my knife shop right now, so you can see, see patterns behind me, you know, all kinds of tools, a lot of tools I've made myself. Knife making is very unique, it's special to me because when I was 12 years old, my mother took me to the public library in Joppa, Missouri to get my very first library card. And 
I did the paperwork, got my library card, walked around, didn't want to embrace the Dewey Decimal System at that point. So I was just going to walk around. There you are. Hey, dropped out. Oh, no biggie. Where did you, where did you lose me at? Where do I need to pick up at? Uh, you were just then starting about like you're, you didn't want to embrace the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. So walk, right where you faded. Yeah. Walking around the library and I grabbed the first book off the shelf. I look at it and it says step-by-step -step knife making. You can do it. So I flipped open the book. It's got pictures with really cool for a 12 year old. And I thought, well, I kind of like the way this is laid out. The back of the book, and there's these cool knives with these etched images on them, and these pictures of knights and and scenery and animals and whales and elks and deer. And yeah, this is pretty cool. So I checked out the book, brought it home, I read it, I read it again, and I read it a third time before I had to go back. And I told myself then, at 12 years old, I really want to try that someday. I want to make knives. But at the time, I was being raised by a single mother. The you know our collection of tools was a butter knife and a hammer you know the butter knife did everything the hammer couldn't do and so it wasn't in the cards at that point and fast forward you know 30 years later at work at the hospital and uh one of my co-workers asked me do you know anything about etching steel and like that's a strange question to ask me, but as a matter of fact, I do. I read about this in a book when I was 12 years old. Uh, he he taught Bushido uh, martial arts, and he, he was giving some swords to a couple of his students. I don't know if you ever knew Torah. He might have been gone by the time you got there, but he, uh, he wanted to present his students with samurai swords, and he wanted to etch something in Japanese on the blade. And I said, you know what? I read a book about that, and uh, let me get back to you. So I went to Barnes & Noble. And I found that book on the shelf and I bought it. And then I went back the next day and bought every book they had on knife making, which was a few. And that was 2005. And I read everything cover to cover, studied everything I could online. But, you know, just like I said before, learn everything I can learn before I start spending money. And then I thought, okay, I picked a, I had in my mind a path that I wanted to travel. I didn't want to be one of these primitive guys that hammered everything out. Uh, I knew my shoulders weren't going to take that. Uh, and uh, I knew I didn't want to work with files and draw hammers. I wanted to have power tools. Some guys want to get really primitive with it. So I knew how the process I wanted to embrace with the option of venturing into different things. And I started tooling up, and I've been a knife maker ever since. And that has truly become a part of my identity because there's so many different disciplines you have to learn. You know, there's woodworking. There's working with synthetic. There he is. Oh, sorry about that. I oh, might be good. too far from my router. No biggie. I'm just writing down the times, and that helps me go back and edit, so it's really not a big deal sure. at all. So. But you were uh, literally at the point where you were talking about how it's your identity, and then that's kind of where you froze. Yeah. Uh, knife making has – I'm happy to be identified as a knife maker. You know, sometimes – as a tattoo artist, people say, you know, Tattoo Andy or the Andy the Tattoo Guy. Every conversation that followed once people found out I was a tattoo artist was, well, what do you think about this tattoo? Or how much does, how much would you charge me for a dragon? My favorite answer would be, well, that's kind of like asking how much a blue car costs. You know, there's, there's a lot of details left out. Uh, so uh, while I wasn't super stoked 
to have you know conversations about tattoos every time somebody found out I did it, even though it was my bread and butter. I'm very stoked to talk about knives. Anybody wants to talk about knives, so I know I've found my calling, and I've been doing it for, gosh, how long now? I don't know, eighteen years or so. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, since 2005, you said. So. Yeah. So. I love it. I love everything about it. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to start new projects, try things I haven't done. You know, once I do a big knife, a big knife project, I want to incorporate some technique in there that I've never done before. Just kind of broaden my horizons. Now, don't get me wrong. There are guys out there whose skill at knife making is legendary. It's, they can't make a knife that doesn't sell for five grand. You know, it's, but their knives are considered art and their knives will never do any work. <laughs> you know, they'll wind up in a collection and, right. you know, in a, a high-end collection somewhere. I want my knives to cut stuff. I want them to skin deer. I want them to open boxes. I want them to, I don't care if you're trimming your fingernails, but I want those knives to work, you know, cut. You got to cut a string or a rope, pull out the knife I made. I, that, to me, that's the testament of, of my stuff works is that people use it. So that knife you own a mine, you better be using it. I use it. At least every day, if not every other day. So awesome! It's right by me. I hope it's holding an edge. It is now. I do. I mean, I've been reluctant on sharpening it all the way. I just clean it up a little bit, really, put some oil on it. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't want it to lose its its edge at all. But it cuts perfect still right now. But I oil it at least every other month or so. Awesome! Perfect. But. I, I think I, I, I'm not sure if I remember you saying this like in passing or whatever it was. Now, your style of blade and your, I guess, you good? I'm good. All right. Well, hey, uh, what, what I was getting at is that I'm not sure if you've said this in passing or if I might have overheard you saying it. Your, the way that you came up with your style of your, of your knife making and your blade, maybe, I, I, I think I heard you right. I think it came from somebody who is now gone i do believe is is this correct where i'm going down this path Keep did talking. you have like a style well i, I well, thought it was a woman i thought it was a woman where you you oh, saw this style okay. of blade made i i know what you're talking about uh that's that's two conversations my style um if you could call it that there there are certain features on most of my knives that make it my style like if you look at the knife you've got right there you'll see that the handle doesn't have just this vertical line that separates the blade from the handle but the top of the handle dips down below the spine of the knife as it comes forward to its forward point right that's a, right. that that is my trademark in three-piece knives like that let where me, you've got let me show people watching you're talking. yeah so where that where that handle dips down under the spine that's very unusual it's very hard to do it's a couple extra steps but to me that makes the blue. i hope you're not getting too irritated with it <laughs> no i just I, i'm wondering if there's anything i can do to help uh is I your mean, wife five bars on wi-fi here Maybe try turning it off and see if you don't lose signal. I don't. I don't know how well your signal is for your data or anything. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, what I was saying was that you know that one feature of my knives, and 
the organic shape of them because I like everything to be bent and flowing and uh, to have curves because curves are sexy. Everybody likes curves as opposed to just straight lines and stuff like that. So that's my style of blade. What what I think you're alluding to is a lady named Francine Larstein. I I mentioned it earlier in that book that I picked up from the library. I I do want you to know that I listen. Yes. Uh, When I flipped to the back of that book and I said, I saw those knives with knights and horses and animals and stuff on them. That was a technique called the aqua regia technique pioneered by Francine Larstein and David Boy, who was the author of that book. And they were able to etch images in their knives using wax and asphalt as a ground. And then they drew pictures in the wax and then dipped the whole blade in acid through, it's not that simple, but that's how they revealed the image in the steel. And I've been in contact with her. She's an old woman now, uh, but she, helped talk me through some of the my early questions when I got to the point of my knife making where I thought I had knives worth that kind of embellishment. And I've kind of pioneered a little bit. Instead of using wax and asphalt, which is really messy, I use spray paint, uh, white spray paint with a satin finish. And then I can draw the images or transfer the images the same way I transfer tattoos with stencil paper, actually using the same stencil paper left over from my tattoo career I can transfer those images onto the steel that I've pre-drawn onto a paper full-size version of that knife. And then I can go and carefully inscribe those lines and then through a process, multiple etching process, removing more paint, create multiple layers of depth of an image in the steel. And I've done a few that I'm pretty proud of. I really just got into that this past year, maybe 18 months ago. And I've done several. Uh, just in fact, just last week, I shipped off a three knife commemorative set to a fellow veteran of the 101st Airborne Division for his division that he's going to present to a couple of his old battle buddies. And um, yeah, really enjoyed that. That that's been a very satisfying step forward in the knife journey for me. So I'm hoping to. I do know that I heard a, about a woman, a story you were telling. I just wasn't yeah. sure what what uh, I yeah, guess scenario you were talking about. No, that's that's Francine. She's a she's a very brilliant artist, and some of her work is, you know, I still pull out that book and look at the pictures of her stuff today. And she actually still has a website, uh, uh, FrancineEtchedKnives.com, I believe. If anybody wants to check it out, beautiful stuff. So is she just known out for etching? <laughs> so is What's she that? just known for etching, though? Yeah, that she's not a knife maker. She's just she just does the etching, and uh, okay. fantastic work. So before I actually keep going, where I've I've been trying to I didn't want to ask you over a message because I want to kind of save it for this. Where did you get the sure. I guess idea for your logo? If like what is this? I'm like, glad you asked that question. Well, um, just sitting on the desk here in front of me, the workbench is this Bowie that I'm going to be making for my grandson's high school graduation. Now I'm going to get here, as close me... to the camera as I can get. Well, you here can I'll, see the I'll bring you on a solo layout. Sure. I guess it's not big enough, but it's all right. Well, you can see the spine, right? Mm-hmm. This particular knife is a quarter inch thick. This logo that you see on my shirt was designed for a needle file like this, a little thin little needle file, to cut these lines from this logo into the spine of the knife. 
because I wanted to do it a little different than other guys did it. You know, I want to be the turd in a punch bowl. So, and if you ended with turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> yeah. So imagine this logo with the top imaginary top line, the imaginary bottom line, those would be the edges of the spine of the knife. And I would cut that into the steel. Now I've actually only done that a couple of times. Um, because I had opted to create a more traditional stencil and just lay that on there. But this is my initials. It's AJ, well, AJG, if you gotcha. can use a little imagination on the G, right? Yeah. And it looks kind of like mean, mountains. I literally started like pondering. It was mainly when I got the knife in the mail when I saw your sticker or your uh, die cut that yeah. you have that came with it. Yeah. Like, where did he, because I don't remember seeing it while we worked together, but I was like, I want. I assumed that one of the triangles was an A, or one of the the yeah. first one was an A. I went through a couple of different earlier versions, you know, in the first few years of my career. You know, you ride with something for a while, like yeah, yeah I can do better than that. Uh, this one I landed on, and, and I'm a hundred percent satisfied. This will be my logo until I'm dead, because I've actually, um, you know, once you start making swag and shirts and stickers and stuff like that, you don't want to go changing it too much after that, but. I like it. I still like it today as much as I did the first day I came up with it. Well, I will tell you this. I tried good. Well, I hope I'm not messing up your show with all this dropping out. No, I mean, I'll just, I'll freelance the editing and then whatever blank spots we have. I mean, I know where you left off, so it's not a big deal. But no, I, I tried Googling your logo and then that way I could kind of pull it from that. But I also wanted to bring it in as a story because I, I, I assume there was something original about it and you had a story to tell about it. And that's why I wanted to ask on here versus me asking and messaging you. Cause I'd rather hear it firsthand. So actually but, it was, it, it was standing at a nurse's station doodling much like you've seen me do many times before. That's when I came up with it. Well, you answered my question for sure, but I mean, it's, does it blow your mind that it's not on Google? Um, well, when I Google my, if you Google my name or Garrett Knives or stuff like that, most of it will route you right to my Facebook page, right? Right. Or if you do an image search, you'll see some pictures. But I don't think I've ever tried to Google my logo before. Well, I, I was, mean, ma- not- I figured you might have it as like maybe like a, like a, an emblem of something like that. So when I Google Garrett Knives, I was hoping that that might pop up. But no, I was Googling mainly because I wanted to be able to put it on the, the, the slides that we'll be able to go through here in a few. Oh, I see. Uh, and that's really yeah. all it was, but it's no big deal. Yeah, I, I've never actually thought about trying to Google the logo. It's not well, a registered or trademark logo, so anybody could steal it, I suppose. You better copyright that down. <laughs> but no, like, my main questions were, like, did you have, like, uh, other than your self-teaching abilities, like, did you have any other training with knife making other than what you've taught no. yourself? No, that's all self-taught. So, I mean, I use, I use tools that I never knew, I'd never heard of, you know, I didn't know existed before, but, you know, it's, I learned a lot about knife making through the Knife Network, asking questions, you know, the old forums before social media was omnipresent. I mean, I, I, I was late to the game for Facebook and, even early Facebook wasn't really good for that kind of teaching and sharing of, uh, you know, cause groups weren't a thing in the early days. So I uh, did a lot on forums, uh, 
and then you know these days YouTube you can learn every, you can learn everything there's making knife. Uh, you were saying YouTube you can learn anything on YouTube how to make a knife. Yeah, it's I mean it, the the social media footprint for knife making and instruction. Well, for any kind of instruction, you know you. I learned how to fix my car on YouTube. You know, it's, it ought to, it ought to come with a degree or a technical certificate because you can actually learn some quality stuff. Yeah. You've got to sift through all the crap too, but right. you know, the same can be said for schools of higher education too. Right. YouTube it. Exactly. I, uh, I bought plans for how to, you know, I didn't have a two by 72 grinder and I didn't have $2,000 to buy one. So I built one with scrap metal, you know, and, and a guy came up with a way to do it, bought, sold plans, and I bought the plans and modified them to my liking, and you know, spent a couple of days building a grinder. So, for less than a hundred dollars, I have a grinder that would have cost me two thousand, and it's been serving me well for ten years. Now, I also think in another conversation we had, you said that a forge isn't necessarily one of the tools that you like using when making a knife. Now, is this still the same method that you stick with? Or you think there that are it's two, either overused? There, well, no, it's not, not overused. There are two schools of thought. I use a forge with every knife, at least for the heat treating process. But could you sorry, hear me kicked, there at the end? No, it kicked me clean off the planet that time. What'd you say? Oh no, I was just trying to wor- verbally tell you, hey, try kicking out of your go out completely out of your phone, close everything. And yeah, it did. My my whole phone just restarted. <laughs> So, well, maybe that'll fix it, fix everything. Maybe. So, but you uh, were. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, where to drop out? Uh, you were talking about how uh, you can't necessarily get the perfect shape or cut every time. When right. Okay. So, when when you hammer the blade, there's a lot of undulating shapes, and I can't take something that I've hammered and as effectively lay a stencil on that hammered piece of steel and get the same shape, right? And every blade that's hammered to shape still has to go to a grinder to get its final dimensions, you know, to clean it up, unless you want that, that what they call brute to forge when they're being all fancy bands, which is kind of like an as forged finish, and you can see some of the hammer marks on it. I've done a few like that. It's not my favorite way to do knives, but it, it does have a place. But... You know, extensive injuries in my shoulders. I just had my left shoulder rebuilt a year and a half ago. My right shoulders do. Swinging a three-pound hammer, a two-pound hammer, beating hot steel on an anvil isn't conducive to a long knife-making career for me. So the stock removal method works. There, There's debate, you know, about which is better. Uh, and the debate goes both ways. And it's kind of like religion. Everybody believes what they believe. And it's uh, it's a source of a lot of fun among knife makers. Now, most of most knife makers like me, I think I mentioned this in that video you watched, I don't make knives that have, you have to go take over a small country with just the knife. You know, I, I, it doesn't have to, you know, I'm not gonna be chopping through ammo cans and ice blocks and, and nails and, and four by fours that are pressure treated like they do on forged and fire. I make knives that are meant to do what they're meant to do. A pocket knife will cut all the things a pocket knife cuts. A chopper for camping will cut some wood, cut some rope, do all the things camp knives should do. A a kitchen knife will be heat treated in such a way that it's easily resharpened with a steel and it doesn't chip because you don't want metal flakes in your food. You make the knife to do what it's designed to do. 
and that's what I do. And either methodology, forging or stock removal, works for the way I make knives. And like I said, I do, uh, you know, I'll take an old, I collect old wrenches and stuff that I buy at the antique store because people like to have an old wrench hammered into a knife. And uh, so that's the majority of my forging. I would, I very seldom take steel and hammer it into a shape like this if I can accomplish the same thing with more precision through the stock removal method. It's just a more efficient way to work for me. So nine out of 10 of what I make is stock. Can you hear and me now? Reboot did it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it kicked me clean off the planet again. <laughs> at least I think I stopped at a good place on that one. Oh, you're good. Yeah. 129. I'm just writing down time so I can go back and edit and everything. Sure, I got you. <clears throat> but no, you ended that off with it's just a more efficient way for you to make knives. Giving, I'm assuming exactly. just not only do you like the way that the turnout of the knife is, but also your shoulders and the wear and tear on the body sure. and stuff like that. Sure. I mean, I learned now, I learned through tattooing that you have to take care of yourself. You're going to have a short career, you know, and every knife maker has a different journey. You know, we're all, we're, we're all using different kinds of tools, using the methods we like, creating the kind of knives we like. And there's, there's a many different ways to do it. And there's paths that cross each other, you know, that can pick up ideas from this guy and your path will change over the years. You know, when you get bored with something, you'll do something else. Now, before we get into some slides, I'm going to just, for people who are watching, are going to be able to look at all this. I, now, do you have like an ultimate goal in mind, like with your knife making abilities? Like, do you have like a, I guess, I guess some people on YouTube have said that they want to be considered a master bladesman, which is very hard to get the actual title of. And No, I'm, and I'm, a lot of those guys are members of the American Bladesmith Society. You were saying they were all so, a part of the Bladesmith Society? Yeah, the American Bladesmith Society is uh, a group, and they focus almost exclusively on the hammer and forging part of knife making. Uh, everything's uh, forge welding, Damascus, you know, it's manipulating and, and mastering the steel through the thermal cycling process with the hammer and the forge. Um, my thermal cycling, you know, when I heat treat a knife, I use the forge and you know, there's tricks to that, but I don't, I'm not a member of the ABS. I, I don't have a journeyman and, you know, they, they get a little stamp that they can put on their knife, which either says JS for journeyman Smith or MS for master Smith. It's, it's kind of like having a PhD behind your name, I guess, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, but I have no interest in that. This will always be a hobby for me. Uh, if it makes enough money to keep the hobby going, that's great. And that's where I'm at now. You know, this does not pay the bills. <laughs> not not mm -hmm. by, you know, and I get the, you know, I, I have the shirts made and I have the stickers made to, to give it a little bit of gravitas and to, you know, the shirts make great packing material. You know, yours are wrapped, wrapped up in a shirt. You know? yep. and Don't get too frustrated. It's, it's going to nah, be all I'm right. Good. I'm good. I, I just, uh, I feel bad that I'm ruining your, making, no. making this a lot of work for you later. You can't ruin anything. It's all technology. It'll be all, it'll be all good, but no, yeah, it came wrapped in a shirt. Um, yeah. mainly I was surprised that cause I asked Jamie, I was like, so what's this, what's this, this cost on her, on her, I'm not ever stingy with whatever she buys. Right. I was just curious. It's just, well, what's this? And she goes, don't worry about it. And usually what that <laughs> means she's trying to be something secretive, but 
you know, yeah. I had I had no idea. I was even Googling because when she said it, I started Googling like where like this billing thing was coming out of and like there was nothing <laughs> on the internet. I was like, man. Well, but no, uh I've wanted one of your blades probably for the last probably since I left the hospital in twenty fourteen. So twenty fifth, yeah, fourteen. Well, I'm glad I was super honored when she contacted me. And that's that's always kind of like a I mean it's a it's a humbling moment when somebody will shell out you know something to the tune of hundreds of dollars for something that somebody made with their own hands you know that's that's quite a now, I was saying it's a you know it's an honor when somebody will shell out money to to buy something that you've made and that's that's never lost on me so I always try to over deliver. You know, I was trying to. I don't ever want somebody to open a knife that they've had high expectations of and feel like the that they paid too much for it. You know, that's that would that to me is a failure of, of colossal proportions. And I'm not aware that I've ever disappointed somebody like that. So I hope I never do. Uh, like I said, it's a hobby. It, it, if if I was doing this to make money, I, there there are, there are better ways to make money. Believe me, um, but. I get a lot of reward from from my time spent in the shop. It keeps me at home. If Michelle wants to talk to me, she's a couple of steps and she's out here with me, you know, and kick, kick the radio on with some old classic rock and roll and just do my thing. And uh, uh, I there's very little I have enjoyed more than this. Of all the things I've done, this is my favorite. Well, it definitely shows, I mean, just you talking about it and also the post that you have on Facebook. You can't hear me? There you go. I could I could hear you. You were your mic was muted on your end, so I don't know what was going on there. Oh yeah, I couldn't hear you either there for a minute. Well, I could hear you, but for some reason you couldn't hear me. I mean you sounded a little distorted, but it wasn't too bad. Well, no, I'm about uh, 30 feet from my uh, my router. So, I mean, I'll get it to work. Every time you keep cutting out, I'm just kind of explaining other things sure. that uh, that you've done. So, but hey, I'll, why don't I'll we get turn. into these slides? Sure. Uh, really, I just set this up mainly for people who are interested uh, in what you have actually done. So, if they don't follow you, hopefully, this kind of leads them in that direction if they watch this video. So. One, cool. uh, he's got a Facebook page, uh, and two, he's got a uh, book that I'll link. I'll link all of this stuff in the description. So, like the link to your Facebook, the link to your book, and all that stuff. So, on this first uh, slide here, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the process that you use to go through with this? I think that this is beautiful. This if particular knife, yeah, this is a this is an Australian bully. Uh, it's an Australian style bully. He was getting ready to say it was an Australian style Bowie. And that was literally what I assumed it was, is that he probably sent it off to somebody who was from Australia or who was going to use it in Australia. But uh um so as I was saying, this is a this is an Australian Bowie knife. I have a colleague that I worked with until he retired recently who is from Australia, and he commissioned this piece. 
we talked about what kind of design he wanted. He wanted to celebrate his heritage. So all of the imagery on that knife is Australian based, of course. The the wood of the handle is ringed gigi, which is an Australian uh, ironwood type tree. The pin work in the handle is representative of the Southern Cross, uh, the one of the more dominant Southern constellations in the Southern Hemisphere. And I achieved this through six stages of etching, uh, painted First, bring the finished blade to a mirror polish, paint it with satin white paint, transfer the image, and then in stages, start removing it from the background to the foreground. You know, the furthest things back get removed first because they're going to be etched a total of six times going deeper, creating more relief. You know, and then the next step, I'll remove something else like the, in this case, it was the, um, the outline of the continent of Australia. And then the next stage, it was the, Sydney Harbor Bridge and Ayers Rock and then move forward, constantly moving forward until I get to the final thing. And then I etch the whole knife and repolish it. And for those who are listening, he's just kind of going over the process that he has of what he went to designing the, the etching on the blade that he's had on here right now. Like what people who are watching or looking at is a kangaroo and it's just got all these graphics in the back so hopefully there he comes where where did i end uh you were you ended on the uh the bridge uh okay and and that's kind of yeah, where so, you cut out so i just with each thing that i want to move forward i just scrape off the paint for that item and then edge it again and keep moving forward to different levels and this particular one took six levels of etching and it was real, and this was actually the first such, well, not the first. It was the first big effort that uh, I did. It was my second etched design in the classic aqua regia technique pioneered by David Boy and Francine Larstein. Now I do have one question about this knife. Now in the handle below the sure. second rivet or the second uh -huh. uh, connection there, are those ball bearings? Those silver things on the big part of the handle that you have a picture uh, of? No, those those are pins that go all the way through, but they're domed and polished. Oh, okay. I was uh, kind of I didn't know if it was like a signal or something like that. No, that that's the Southern Cross. That's the constellation oh, of the that's Southern what Cross. You were which about. Is, okay. Uh, okay. Yes, exactly. No, that that those four silver domed pins represent the Southern Cross. Okay. Well, hey, I got this one right here, and this one's, it's a little far away, but I got what I could get out of it, and I think this will still do it justice just by people seeing the artwork on the on the blade itself. Yeah. This was another piece uh, for, which is actually the same profile of the one I was holding up earlier. It's, um, and all of these profiles, by the way, are of my own design. I don't copy anybody else's work. I don't make knives from movies and stuff like that. Um, this one was from... A, a fellow 101st Airborne veteran of the gold. And for, again, people who are listening, since, I mean, he keeps cutting in and out, and that's not a problem for me. So I'll kind of talk about what I'm seeing. It's literally uh, a, a, like almost a portrait of uh, a military firing a rifle. And then I think you could sort of see a ship out there. Uh, and it was made for uh, a veteran uh, who was in. Airborne. Can you hear me? Yep. 
Okay. So, yeah, this was a fellow veteran of the 101st, 327th Infantry Regiment, and he wanted a knife to commemorate. He had seen the Australian knife that you had shown previously, and mm -hmm. he wanted one to commemorate the battle that launched um, the ground war in Desert Storm. And he was a member. He was he participated in that battle. That feature in the middle is a quad gun that uh, helicopters uh, took out. And if I could, if I wasn't having a brain fart right now, I could tell you the name of that battle. But um, yeah, and all of the insignia, the airborne, or excuse me, the air assault wings, the Ranger tab, all of that stuff is certifications that he himself had. The handle. No is olive wood native to the region and the blue spacer is infantry blue uh because he's of course that's a infantry outfit now when you do customizations like this do you ever have you ever asked uh probably a seller or buyer oh he cut out but i'm going to ask him if he's if he ever gets like hand measurements and that's i guess i was kind of interested in that about like if he wants it to be uh, if it's for functioning, uh, regular use, rather uh, show kind of like probably what this one was made for. Uh, my question for him is going to be like his hand measurements. Can you hear me? Yep. When I do customizations like this, you were saying? Yeah. Uh, like on the handles, uh, do you ever ask or have you ever asked about like if they're going to use this for function? Like, do you ever get hand measurements to make it even more personal for that person? Yes, I can. Um, most knives, particularly ones that I take orders from at a distance, that's kind of hard to do. I'll ask if people have normal sized hands. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of times when I'm doing a sheath, I'll ask if they're left or right handed, if they want to cross draw, if they want a traditional draw, things like that. Things that will help, you know, what kind of what kind of colors do they want in the, the leather dye, things like that. I find that people get their best work for me if they kind of give me a little artistic license and let me do what I think is going to look good. Uh, if they get too specific, then it's, yeah, it was the same thing with tattooing. It's no longer my artwork. At that point, I'm just a technician. And, you know, what they end up with is a, a, something of their own design. So with knives, I've stopped doing that altogether. I make the knives I want to make. Uh, if people want to pay for them, that's cool. And on a custom commission like this, I they, they get a set of parameters. I'll say this is... Uh, you know, I sent this guy a, a paper drawing of what just the line features of the knife. And said the rest is up to me. He said, cool. You know, and uh, hopefully it all works out. And then, so far it always has. All right. Well, let's go to the next one. Now, this one sure. I'm I'm highly intrigued with only because of, of uh, kind of like how you got this stuff at the, is that the, uh, what do they call that? The butt of the knife? Um. Uh, yeah, this is uh and for ones again listening, he kind of cut out. Um it's a photograph of a what looks to be a cleaver of some sort, and uh there's a, a design kind of either etched or heated in to whoa, whoa oh, there he is. I'll be able to answer questions. Okay, so like I was saying, this is an example of one that I forged from a leaf spring and this was a leaf spring from a heavy truck um, probably 5160 could have been 6150 but i doubt it and it has an example of what i was talking about earlier with that as forged vintage up there on the ricasso near the spine 
where the hammer mm-hmm. texture and the forge scale is still on the blade. That is a it's a um, rustic chef's knife. I forget what the handle is. I think it is stabilized maple that's been dyed blue and black. Um, but yeah, this was one of my favorite knives. And it's an example of one that I can't do exactly the same way again because, like I said, it wasn't a paper image. It was hammer and grind and hold it up until it looks right. So it would be really hard. Although I did, once it was finished, before I put the handle on it, scribe the outside, the profile onto a piece of paper so that I could reproduce it using the stock removal method later. The finding steel that wide is really tough. That's a big knife. I mean, it doesn't, the picture don't do it justice, but it definitely has a ton of character and the picture does do that. But I I, I I couldn't tell you how wide it was. I enjoyed making it. Yeah, it's from, I mean, that handle is an inch at its narrowest. So that's a five or a six inch tall blade from edge to the peak of the, of the false edge where the clip starts. Now, this is something I know nothing about. He cut out, but uh, the next slide is just a picture of some push-style knives, like push daggers. And uh, this is something that I know that uh, a lot of those everyday carry people uh, use, or not necessarily use, but they carry them with them in case they feel like they might need to use them. But uh, the picture that I'm looking at on the left looks Damascus. Can you hear me? Okay. Where are we? We are on some push style knives. Okay. The knife on the left is the knife that first put me on the map as a knife maker. In fact, um, that is the very first image I ever had done professionally by a professional knife photographer. That uh, was originally called a dog bite, and then some other guy published a knife that he called dog bite. So uh, it's now just called the Garrett Push Dagger. It is, I'm proud to say, fully unique. Anything different in the world of knives is good because knives, I mean, they're pretty simple. It's hard to do something that nobody's done before. Very hard. So with that knife, I'm proud to say I did it. Nobody's ever done handle construction like that that I'm aware of. Um, It's just the the geometry of it is insanely difficult to pull off. I've only done about 15 of these over my career, and it's still – the knife that I get the most questions about, um, I, I get, you know, that particular one is made out of ladder pattern Damascus with uh, carbon fiber handle scales. And there's actually four of those carbon fiber inserts into the handle, two on each side. And it's just a very difficult knife to make. Uh, consequently, it's expensive. But it is one of the earliest knives that I. He cut out again, but uh, really for the ones who are looking at this, I think they're getting a good picture about what he means by the handle that it's, I mean, it looks Damascus, but now that he kind of is talking, I'm going to, it's leading me to believe that it's not since it's uh, very unique. Can you see me? Yep. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello. I can hear um, you. I can't hear you, Bob. Uh, let me go ahead. And, if me. you can't. 
Oh, you're good. Backed out, probably just try to get his uh, mic to work, but very unique knives, though. Um, I've never personally ever seen a push dagger made like any of these, especially this one on the left. Uh, mainly the just the design and the metal, and then the grip is just crazy cool. So hopefully, people who are listening go to the YouTube video and kind of. That way they get a better idea of what they're looking at. So that way they're not left out in the out in the cold about what we're talking about. But uh, he also makes all of his sheaths by hand. Um, I'm assuming that he, he picked that up after he found out that a knife making was another venture that he was going to go down. So hopefully we can get into that when he comes back in. So I'm really digging the. Hopefully he gets back in. Probably going to restart the phone or maybe go back inside. We'll see. But uh, for ones who are watching, I do apologize for the cut out, but things like this happen. And that's the downfall of uh, knowing people from other states. You're going to have that uh, remote type uh, podcast. And Granted, he is in, uh, I think he said Idaho. So um, I really... I really would have loved for him to come or be here, but just being able to actually hit uh, for him to say yes to being on here was, uh, I was excited about for numerous reasons. And one is that he's never been on a podcast before. So, and it kind of blew, kind of took me away by, or took me by surprise because for the type of things that he's done in life, nobody else has ever asked him to be on something or questioned or asked him to uh, maybe take part in maybe a YouTube video. And I, I feel quite honored to actually get him to say yes, to be on here and talk about stuff like this. So hopefully we get it back in here.
Can you hear me? That was a bad one. <laughs> no biggie. Sorry about that. No biggie. One fifty six twenty two. That's not too far off, I guess. Fifty six twenty two. I'll be honest. I forgot where you left off on that last one. You were talking about how the handle cost. I think you ended with uh, the cost of it was the yeah. Downfall from it. So this particular knife style, I've shipped all over the world. Uh, in fact, just as the Russians were attacking um, Croatia. Back in what, 2014, 2016, something like that. Uh, I shipped one to the Ukraine, in fact. And then they ordered another one of a smaller size, more similar to the one on the right. Um, but yeah, it's it's it has the uh, virtue of being unique. And I'm very proud of that. So, uh, in, Do you still have that one that's on the left? No, no. In fact, uh, I've got one uh, similar kind of Damascus. And it'll be finished exactly like that one, in fact, because uh, it's going to get carbon fiber, too, which is unusual because I generally don't make the same knife twice. But that one has been so popular. Uh, I'm going to make an exception in this case and do another one just like the one you see there. The other one's uh, one, and the one on the lower right, that little, the one with the blue handled one. Yeah, that's uh, that's maple. It's the same knife in a stainless steel instead of a Damascus. So. Uh, yeah, uh, daggers are hard because they have to be symmetrical, not just left and right, but also, uh, you know, essentially four quadrants have to be symmetrical. Now, I do have a question about the sheaths, not just with these, but all in knives in general. Did you know anything about leather work before you started doing this? Oh, he cut out again. I was just curious about the leather work because I was wanting to know if he self-taught himself with uh, leather work also because uh, it, whenever you look at uh, the leather sheaths that he produces and sends out with these knives, like it, some of them have designs on them that he's either uh, kind of etched in or... Did you hear my last question? Yeah, about the sheaths. Yeah, I just wasn't sure if you taught yourself how to do leather work before you even got into knives, or if it's something that you took up. No, knife learning leather work was uh, a, was part of the process of learning knife making. I knew I wanted to to have one hundred percent sole authorship every, everything I shipped out, with the exception of Damascus billets, like the one you see. I don't make the Damascus myself. Um, I buy billets from uh, known smiths that uh, I know produce quality stuff quite expensive but it's worth it i'm not a real huge damascus guy no damascus is real popular in knives i generally make it when people ask for it and i try to have at least one piece on my table because people expect that of knife makers but i think it's, it's kind of like played out like lambo doors i'm kind of sick of it yeah, to be honest very, with you. i think it's I, I prefer the what's that for looks is what i've always gathered yeah, like it, i've been making it, it, it creates, creates an interesting texture but no it's not a better knife in fact a good argument could be made that it's not as good as a mono steel knife, um, but it can be pretty. I'm very picky on what I use uh, and what I like and what I don't like. And ladder and twist is about the only Damascus I use. Okay. Well, let's go to this next one. Now, this top right one is the one that's most intriguing to me only because of the way that the blade curves. And also right. the way that the, the handle looks significantly larger than most of the knives that you have on here. Kind of backed out again, but one's looking again. 
we're watching, he's got uh, uh, a picture of a grip on one side that's got like a red tint to it, red or brownish tint, very shiny. Uh, it's got rivets down the side or connections down the side. Good? Yep. Right. So yeah, that I knife in the upper right. Yeah. yeah. The, the knife in the upper right is um, what's called a kukri. It is the traditional blade style of the Gurkha warriors of Nepal, which fight for the British Army. And this is a very popular knife style. That one's pretty large for a kukri. Uh, it's made for taking off heads, if I'm being honest. They're made to you to behead people from horseback. And I have made two in that particular pattern. And that is the one we're looking at here is the first of those two. Um, that one's got curly koa from Hawaii and uh, just some cool spacers and nickel silver guard. I really like that profile. I, it's one of my favorite designs that I've done. And that's that's a, an example of me doing my own profile on a historic knife uh, that has its own story to tell. Well, let's go to another slide before you get cut out here, because uh, one of these I had a question on. You got another Damascus sure. here on the right. How uh -huh. about that one in the middle? Is that like an emer oh. or a uh, ivory handle? Cut out again. The one in the middle here has a a mountain lion ridge that's uh, etched in the blade, and what appears to be a uh, a white emery or white, uh, yeah. Uh, ivory handle i'm not sure hopefully you can get back in here and answer that you were talking about the one in the middle yeah was the uh is the handle ivory on that one no the handle is mother of pearl genuine mother of pearl okay um fished out of a which is really strange because that's a big chunk of mother of pearl uh two of them one on each side and it was a that is a tricky knife because the, the white spacer material between the metal spacers is actual halite. It's a gemstone or a, it's actual rock. That's, and that's really hard to shape, especially when it's right next to metal. Um, it's easy to break and overheat, but I was really, that, that's kind of like a, a white tie hunting knife. I was really proud of that one. I like that one. Did it make it any heavier with the handle that you have on it? No, not particularly, because uh, the mother of pearl is very light. Um, balance is always tricky, you know, because you want to use certain materials. And, you know, when I put like a stone handle on a knife, and I've just started using genuine gemstone in this past year, things like labradite and stuff like that. And that's really difficult to work, um, tough to shape. So uh, it can it can make a knife unbalanced. Yeah, what it sounds like is that he was going to say that uh, some types of uh, handles can make it unbalanced, and that's what he really goes for. So hopefully he didn't get too frustrated, and the listeners, hopefully they don't get too frustrated, but uh, I really want to get this uh, information out there. Okay. You good? Where did I drop off? Uh, you were saying you ended with the word unbalanced. Yeah, it's, it's easy to get a knife unbalanced with heavy handle material like stone and certain things. Uh, but there's tricks you can use uh, reducing the mass of the tang inside the handle, things like that. 
Um, and you can always throw, you can always move weight around in a knife. There's there's pretty groovy tricks for that. Let's get to slide eight. Uh, now I'm assuming is this one on the right still that uh, two slides ago with the uh, the one that took heads off is is that the knife that you're talking about? No, the one on the right is actually a bully knife. Uh, oh, it's a okay. straight bully, two inches wide. That was that that knife represented a lot of firsts for me. It was my first Spanish notch. It was my first stacked handle, first antler handle. It's actually a pretty old knife. First time I made a Spanish loop sheath or Mexican loop sheath. First time I did a sub hilt, which is the uh, handle that has the drop down between the first and the second fingers, drop down piece of metal guard. That that was I wanted to do a lot of things I hadn't done with that knife. That's uh. That was back when we were living in Hayesville when I made that one. So how many uh, uh, requests do you get for axes like the one down here on the left? Um, a few. Uh, that one and most of the ones I do are modified roofing hatchets. Uh, when I do hatchets, it's generally a spike hawk, cutting edge on one side, spike on the other. And a roofing hatchet is easy to do, do that with because it already comes with a hammerhead that and for ones looking again, uh, or not being able to see this, uh, it's got the, uh, the etching of Mount Rushmore in it and, uh, a white handle with, uh, it, what appears to be like a, some sort of emblem in the middle of it, kind of where the, uh, the handle meets the, uh, the blade itself. Uh, say that again. Oh, no, I was kind of, while you cut out, I always talk to the listeners who who can't see what I'm saying, so I'm describing the, the etching of the Mount Rushmore that you have on this uh, hatch. Oh, yeah, it's Mount Rushmore on one side, and it's uh, Devil's Tower on the other. I'm real okay. happy with that. That's a, The handle on that one is what's called Usyk, which is actually the penis bone of a walrus. I actually uh, saw that on a Joe Rogan episode. He, somebody actually brought him a whole uh, walrus penis, I do believe. Yeah. Yeah, this so is I'm the, assuming this that's expensive. small end. <laughs> but the sheath work that you have on that one on the right now, those that you got the, uh, the silver pieces of metal, what are those? That's a, that's a, a Morgan silver dollar or... It's a facsimile of a Morgan silver dollar. Tandy makes a real good fake one that uh, they've copied from a genuine stamping, and that's what that is. It's all metal, and it's but it's not real silver. Okay. Uh, what was the other one I had? The next one is really just the slide. I do believe of the one with my knife in it. I'm assuming that's mine, if it's not a longer handle on it. Uh, that knife is very, it's either yours or it's very similar to yours. I can't bring, kind of bring that closer, but, uh, it, yeah. the handle color is exactly the same. So that's why yeah. I, was, I was assuming. They are both made from this. It's the same, it's the same model and that's coral on both of them with G10 bolsters. But I think yours is yours have little star patterns in the coral, right? Um, not very good lighting in here to be able to see it all. No, I wouldn't necessarily say star pattern. Okay, then it's then it may very well be the same knife. 
can't recall. I, yeah, I mean, it, it looks it just looks longer in the picture, probably from the angle you're taking the picture. Yeah, of. the angle of the photography. <laughs> I get tricky. The other one is one of my first attempts at scrimshaw. That's a bone handle. And um, what kind of bone? Uh, cow, I think. But oh, wow, I the um. And on this one that he said was a uh, cow bone with, has an etching of an eagle uh, head on it. And uh, the just the curvature of the, the blade is significantly different from what I own. So I, I just on cow bone. Yeah. When, when I scrimshaw like that, I'm using techniques that I learned in tattooing, actually, to get that image onto the bone. Is it any more difficult than uh, any other type of handle you've done using bone? Is it probably more delicate? Yeah, any natural handle material comes with its own ghosts and skeletons and demons because it can be very unpredictable. Bone is no different because the interior of a bone is very pithy. So the more you grind it and shape it, the more you get into that spongy interior. And you don't want that on the surface. You don't want that porous surface. So, uh, yeah, bone can be very tricky. You got you to gotta plan it right. And really, that's uh, I had nine slides to show people who were actually watching. And then uh, you can also check out Andy's uh, Facebook page for even more pictures. So uh, there's really an endless amount of his work on his Facebook page. But uh, really what uh, what it all boils down to is kind of like what you said in your video is that you want every knife to tell a story. And that's really, I think, what makes you uh, good at what you do with this part of your venture in life outside of the pilot's license outside of building a boat outside of all that you know how to tell a story and what i've noticed from those videos that you did is that you're real precise on how you want to word something and then if you do mess up you do make sure that you go back and correct yourself that way nobody can actually mess up if they're actually trying to follow along with you i started the 1911 videos just so you know i started the first video and then kind of cut off and kind of got on here but uh that uh, spark test video that you did, I mean, you explained it to a T. I mean, I knew exactly what you were saying about the the complexity of the, the, the sparks and all that stuff and how to test the metal of if it's a good carbon metal or not. So you're I great. Appreciate it. Thank you. But is there anything? That... That? <laughs> hey, if, yeah. you, if you didn't succeed in teaching algebra or social studies, I mean, I think that you'd be a great teacher at this because it's something that you enjoy doing. And I think that's really what sets you set you aside from uh, dropping out of high school, which I learned here today, along with everybody who's going to actually be watching or listening. But I think that the idea about public schools and any schools that you have to find out what somebody's interested in. And if, if it's not school, then there's no problem with that. And I right. really wish that there was more availability for uh I guess, skills such as this or welding or wood when I was in school, because I think that I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So he, he cut out, but I kind of wanted to keep talking because Andy explained earlier in the, in this episode that he was a high school dropout and he at first felt ashamed and there's nothing wrong with that. There. Yep. But no, I, yeah, the, uh... I really want to explain about the, the, if you can find something that you're good at and you have uh, interest in it, such as knives or tattooing or whatever, I think that you could still be successful as anybody who graduated high school. 
Well, the, the trick in life is finding what you're good at and doing it and trying to make enough money to pay the bills. You know, nobody wants to be that guy who goes to a job he hates for 40 years, you know, and to just to earn a retirement that, that barely continues to pay the bills. You know, life is a lot more interesting when you're doing things you enjoy. And I was fortunate to, to find things that I enjoy. And it's changed over the years. And But, I've, you know, I'm, as I as I age and I get closer to retirement, hopefully in, I don't know, seven or eight years, um, this is something I can commit more time to, maybe get better at, maybe, you know, it's amazing how many guys in knife making don't make a name for themselves until they're in their retirement years, you know, because they can do just that. They can focus on it and they can apply a lifetime of learning and experience and knowledge and history and make every part of that project that they're on mean something and, and have meaning and be able to explain every choice they made on it and every feature on the night. That's where I want to be when I retire, you know? So as with all things, this continues to be a learning experience for me. And uh, uh, hopefully I can keep selling enough to, to keep doing it, you know, because uh, price of everything is going up obviously, but uh, it hasn't hit knife making too hard, but you know, it, there's nothing cheap about having a shop full of tools and materials, you know, especially if you want to make high. We're almost done. We, uh, you had, uh, you had, you were about ready to stop it saying, hopefully you can be like that when you reach retirement. And yeah, you said so, the cost yeah. of things were going up. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I just uh, hope that I can still be relevant and still be selling knives and well into my retirement so I can keep doing it. Cause you know, this is the kind of thing I, I, if I die in my shop, that'll be a good death. So. Well, I do. I mean, I think that one of the biggest things that you have left behind is that you've left all these knives for people to, I mean, it tells a story. It's a, it's an heirloom, and that's an important, if you will. That's an important point. When you can make a tool that lasts for generations, you're creating heirlooms for people. And that's, I'm going to be in people's families for generations. That's kind of a cool thing, you know, and not everybody mm -hmm. can say that. But I mean, I appreciate you coming on here and being willing to do it since nobody's ever asked you to actually be on it. It blows my mind how you've never actually been on anything like this to kind of tell a little bit about what you've done in life. So I appreciate you saying yes. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you having me. I love talking about this stuff. You know, I, I, honestly, I was I'm not familiar with podcasts and the and social media in general. I, been slow to that kind of thing and like i said i'm i'm not as young as you young guys so i didn't embrace it when it when it got popular huh well, you're a natural i mean you talk i mean no, you talk just fine that all podcast is is talking yeah well and i learned a long time ago he was about to tell us something else that he learned in life but uh cut out again but i i genuinely appreciate him coming on here and talking about what he's done in life because I find him to be one of the most interesting people that I've met uh, in my life. I haven't done half of what he's done. So I was saying you were a natural and then you were. Oh, appreciate it. Yeah. I, I just, I try to keep the word uh out of public speaking. Cause once I, if you're like me, once you hear somebody say, uh, between every other word, that's all you hear. And then you can't, understand what they're saying so but thanks yeah. i appreciate it I, I have enjoyed it immensely i apologize for the dropouts and no technical difficulties, but i'm sure your mastery of editing will make that seem seamless 
Mastering would be not in that vocabulary at all, but <laughs> I, I, I learn more as I edit versus knowing everything. So it pre I appreciate the, the time that I can actually take the time to learn while I'm going along. So this will just be a long learning session for me. So I wish good. you all success with this endeavor, by the way. I've got no goals for this. I just want to uh, talk to people that one I haven't talked to in a while, but also people who I find uh, bring something to more than just everyday life. I mean, you've got numerous things outside of your life that you do regularly. So, and I find that fascinating. So, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate it. I'm I'm a subscriber, so I'm looking forward to your content. Well, hopefully, I can do more of these. I was waiting to do yours for 2023, so I'll be popping out a few more here in a here in the next few weeks cool but before you go i'll talk to you after i end this recording and then we'll talk and then hopefully sure. we can have you on again sometime when you maybe you've made a bunch of knives or if you end up coming to my neck of the woods again so but he's about to he was about to head out so hopefully i can get him to come back in so but if you go and follow him at uh on facebook it's garrett knives on facebook and he has a couple youtube channels um one of which he's talking spark test. I was getting ready to end. It's not a big deal. I was just telling sure. people about your, I was telling people about your Facebook page ah. and uh, uh, your two YouTube channels. Hopefully you can get those up and running and get a little bit more videos on there. Cause I enjoyed watching the spark test one. And then so far the first one of the 1911 rebuild that you've got going, but that's uh, I had fun building that gun. That, that gun was a, that was a hoot. <laughs> But I'm going to tag all difficult. your stuff in the in the video so people who are listening can click on that and then go to your page. So uh, hopefully they get what I got out of this because I really don't care that you were cutting in and out. I got what I wanted out of it. And like I said, I don't have any goals for this yet. I mean, I just want to, uh, I guess, catch up with people's like, I mean, I'm not that old, but I do know that over time we forget people who we appreciate. And I think that this is something that uh, will help me appreciate people more. So. I'm honored. Thank you. Well, Andy, I appreciate you coming on. I'm going to end this and then we'll call it a day. Sounds great, buddy. Take right. care. You too.